Giuliano, have you ever met a truly evil person? Yeah, mm, that's a, that's an interesting question. How do we define a truly evil person? Let's find out in this episode. The science. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Eleana. And I'm your co-host, Giuliano. And today we are talking about social ethics and evil as a group phenomenon. We are joined by Mariana Sartio Itkonen, a doctoral student focusing on moral philosophy and social psychology at the Faculty of Theology at the University of Helsinki. Welcome, Mariana. Thank you so much. It's very fun to be here today. I'm very excited uh, to have you here for an interview, Mariana, because I find the topic extremely interesting. And from the pre-discussion we had, I got really fascinated and I hope our audience will also get this uh, feeling of fascination that I did. Uh, but uh, just to start giving the people an understanding of what we are going to talk about, maybe you can uh, try in your own words uh, to introduce your field of research. Yes, thank you. Well, <laughs> this is an interesting case because uh, I, I don't have an exact, um, well, social ethics is a thing, but it's not, not really, really defined. Uh, what I'm doing is, as you said, I'm combining moral philosophy and perhaps social sciences and, and maybe looking at some empirical results through uh, an ethical lens. So you're applying science to ethical questions. Did I understand correctly? Uh, yes, at, at times, yes. This is, this is what I also do. I, I look at, for example, biases um, from an ethical perspective. And I'm trying to find out that um, if, uh, if science finds out something about human beings, does it have ethical consequences? That sounds very interesting, but it also sounds very general because there are so many ethical questions and so many uh, concepts that come out of our societies nowadays. So what do you exactly uh, focusing on? Well, I focus on evil <laughs> and especially evil uh, as a group phenomenon. So uh, I have this collective view on this subject. I have always been interested in what makes people somehow lose their, themselves in groups. Because we see time and again, we see examples of human beings who uh, would never ever individually go and do things that just happen in groups. And this is seen throughout the war history. Uh, and well, you can see the same phenomenon in very different types of groups and this is what fascinates me we go beyond the limits of humanity and it seems to happen frighteningly easily so if i understand right you're trying to see how the group dynamics might influence uh, an individual's person's actions 
and uh, you have studied it, you said, uh, from a historical perspective in the war history, but also I can imagine in more modern case scenarios. So what is exactly evil? And is there a global way of interpreting evil or is it something very specific, like case specific or group specific? Well, there are some universal traits, of course, what people consider evil. Well, for example, the killing another human being, it's, uh, it's considered evil in, in, I think, in every known culture that has been studied in the, uh, in the world, uh, harming others without a just cause. So, so to say, this is considered evil. And then a completely other thing then is that uh, what do we interpret as evil? Because we may find a definition that satisfies everyone. Okay, evil is harm done without any good cause. And evil is uh, harm caused just for the harm. But some people say that this actually does not exist. That people do not do evil just for the sake of evil. There's always some uh, other motive behind these actions. And there's the wanting of power or there's the wanting of belonging to a group and there are some researchers philosophers who say that actually evil uh, is a concept that should not be used at all because it's a dangerous concept it's something that can be used as a weapon especially in a political sense we have seen how, for example, in the American context, where there has been wars against evil, what can be justified when you are the representative of good and then the opponent is the re representative of evil? Well, you can justify almost anything. These people that show skepticism about the use of the concept of the word evil like what what are their arguments yeah so um uh, there's the um, political side um, that um it can be used as a weapon and it can be a very destructive weapon also but then there's another side where uh, some philosophers feel that uh, evil actually refers uh to something supernatural that, uh, that this is actually a concept that is not anything that is in the world, but it refers to like the entertainment industry and Hollywood where actors fight the evil and, and they, they are the representatives of the good, good and the light. Well, this is an uh, old way of seeing the world. Some philo philosophers have thought that, that the world is a um, battlefield of, of good and evil forces. And, um, and this is like you know, what Hollywood keeps on uh, giving us. But since these evil skeptics feel that the supernatural connotation is always there with this concept, that we should not be using it in any way related to reality. I'm not sure if I agree with them. I, th I think evil is an important uh, concept to describe the feeling we get when we uh, see or hear something really horrible. As I understand it, you might see something in someone else as evil that make you 
uh, say that we have to extinguish that evil and by attacking that other person and then you commit an evil act because you you yourself you, you cause harm and uh, I guess you know better there are examples throughout our uh, human history of exactly that happening right yes Yes, well, the, the classical example, of course, is uh, the Nazi Germany, where they really tried to extinguish evil. They used propaganda very skillfully to frame Jewish people as the representatives of evil or manifestations of evil. Actually, when I read some of Hitler's texts, there was very explicit sentences where, where he said that Jews are the uh, devil's manifestation or incarnation on earth. And so they managed to take the already in, in Germany that there was this um, hatred against Jews and they, they managed to take it and then lift it to a next level where they started to talk about evil and being a co-worker with Satan. I love the, the convers- this specific topic because, of course, it raises a lot of both, you know, sociological, psychological and obviously philosophical questions. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, right, according to your studies and according to your experience and your research, what are the things, what are the factors that actually affect or influence how people see evil is it purely cultural are there some uh, that to say biological factors that influence that maybe based on our evolution like the fact that we all, you know, we tend to see a lion as evil because it's, a, it's advantages for us to be afraid of him or is it purely cultural yeah thanks for the question um well, for starters, I think what I, I mean by evil uh, is maybe something that a lion would not be, because evil always refers to something moral, and a lion is not a moral being. It goes along with its instincts, and this is what distinguishes human action from animal actions. But to answer your question, I've been using uh, actually two articles which are still in the review process currently i've used the uh, concept of essentialism and uh, this means that human beings seem to have a really strong cognitive bias to essentialize things that are perhaps perhaps not essential and what i mean by essentialism is that well take evil an essentialist view on evil thinks that there is something something in the core of uh, the being of evil that it has its own essentia and that's uh, that's how it can manifest in some some humans of course it doesn't hold very much against philosophical examination ideas usually don't have a core actually but humans tend to see that core where it even in places where it isn't so you mean essentialism uh, implies that there's an essence an evil essence within an evil person did Mm -hmm. i understand correctly yes yes and 
Uh, and for some reason, people tend to look at evil this way of course especially in a religious context because you obviously can take the devil and think that that he's the one manifesting but it's it's not only in in religious thinking it's also also can be seen in secular minds it has something to do with with the tendency to draw lines from us and them and there's the in-group and there's the out-group and we need to protect the in-group and the evil is always outside it's always in in the outer group and we need to protect ourselves from that this is a very very interesting concept because it makes you realize that somehow you become blind to your own actions that fall in that evil regime and you can only see it in the others which then might, uh, in your head, justify everything you do as fine because you you are not the evil, the others are. And this brings a lot of uh, real-life case scenarios in my head. We are born in the modern world and not in Nazi Germany, but if we were born in Nazi Germany, would we have committed those horrific crimes? Was it a Germany and like an exception at the time, or could we have the same thing happening somewhere else? But at the same time, it also makes me think about kids that are being bullied all this negativity piles up inside of them. And we have heard of mass shootings in so many countries. And suddenly you see that that person exploded in like kind of a self-defense or trying to get rid of the evil in its life in a manner that was evil in itself. Maybe I'm mixing too many things together uh, that are not really related. I hope you can clarify on that. From what you said is that People try to put like a certain label to evil, a certain essence, as you said, and when they don't, uh, and they become blind to it when it comes to themselves. Yes, um, I, I think we had a an interesting example of this in the first article I wrote with my colleague Taina Kalliokoski. We studied two social media forums and their conversations and what we called the rhetoric of evil. And this was about an asylum seeker trying to commit a suicide in the uh, railway square in Helsinki a few years ago. And there was this um, immigration critic who filmed this suicide attempt and the video was uploaded. Well, of course, the comments were quite terrible the comments were like oh I wish he would have succeeded I wish I would have been there I would have helped him to commit this suicide and and would be one less of them here okay this was one forum and then the other was these who defended the immigrants and uh, who, who considered themselves as like advocates of human rights And they started to talk about these who they called racists. And we analyzed these two. Uh, We we tried to find uh, rhetorical strategies from there. And our results showed that actually they used exactly the same strategies, both of these groups, uh, no matter what their ethical inclinations were 
or how they saw it, they both considered the other group unhuman. So they dehumanized the other and called them animals. And mentally ill was one, this medicalization was one of these strategies. And they didn't want to live in the same country with them. This tendency to see see the other one as purely evil is, well, I think nobody can escape it. And everyone needs to do the work inside their heads to get get over this tendency and and try to see the human behind these horrible opinions for me it's also to think twice about the words you say and the actions you take because in in the example you gave in the one side we have the racists in the other side we have the anti-racists who were trying to protect the immigrants' rights, but they use the same vocabulary and thinking strategies as the racists, which in the end means we had two groups, regardless of their cause, behaving badly towards each other. So it has to make you think, with that behavior, do you protect someone's rights or do you just enter in an endless circle of fighting that just shows this reek we have in the society? Yeah, yeah, this is a question of polarization very much. Of course, this is what the social media is supporting right now, dividing us into very... Uh, different camps very far from each other and giving us information of the other side which makes us go like those people are evil (laughs) Uh, you would have to be a saint not to go along with this i'm sorry juliana i'm talking to matt if you ever want to stop and ask a question please go ahead but like my my head is really boiling and i have so much going on uh, right now in in my head because your main topic of research is the evil as a group phenomenon and i was wondering in this example you gave could it be that the support you are getting by the group you belong in enhances uh, your uh, actions or amplifies your actions and actually makes you go one step further in being more aggressive, more rude, uh, more dehumanizing towards the other person, just because it's this power you get from behind you. I think this is one of the key elements which leads to horrible happenings and group violence. We have this terrible incident a bit less than a year ago three boys tortured and murdered their own friend it was in december they beat him and tortured him unconscious and left him to die and they were 15 and 16 year old that sounds horrible i'm sorry for interrupting that's please please go ahead I know many many Finnish people who actually couldn't read the news at all. It was so sickening. This was a very visible line of evil, what we think, that there is no nothing more evil than, than this. This is actually a good example where we draw the line between something like very bad and then something truly evil. But this is actually, I think, a very good example uh, also of the power of the group because it can be argued that this incident would have never happened if the boy who got killed 
uh, would have been there with one of his so-called friends. And, and actually the oldest of the boys who committed, I think, the, the most brutal violence, according to the, the interviews from the courts, he said that he committed these acts because he wanted that the other boys would like him, that he, he would get respect and belong to this group more intensely. They had like zero consideration of what human body can take. Perhaps when it was too late, then it was too late. At one point, you, you mentioned this idea according to which no one does evil for the sake of evil. I would say people that have admittedly performed acts of violence because that would bring, bring them pleasure without you know, having to list names or, or different crimes. I'm thinking of people that usually are labeled as a psychopath. At least what I understood is that the psychological profile of these people says that they just have you know, feel pleasure in killing or pursuing or you know following their victims. So when you said that this vision says that, that no one does evil for the sake of evil, did you meant in okay even these people that feel pleasure in doing evil they have hidden traumas you know because of which they feel pleasure, or do you think that really these these people that supposedly feel pleasure in in producing evil, they actually have a hidden reason for which to do that? Well, this psychopath question is a really interesting question. And uh, perhaps it's a question of definition also, uh, that what, what, we, what, we defined, uh, what we define as evil. Because, well, a psychopath, would they define their actions evil or would they, would they define that they are curious what happens to a human body when they do this or that. Because the key element is that their uh, brain does not function in a ways of uh, empathy. Yeah, they, they don't have the ability to feel what other people feel. Oh, you mean you, they're not aware or they do not do evil knowing it's evil, knowing that it's painful, knowing that they're hurting someone? Is, is that what you're saying? Well, so psychopaths are usually, they can be very intelligent. So I think they know that, that the society defines this sort of behavior, like me cutting this head off, very evil. <laughs> but this is not something that they, they would, they take pleasure. It could, could be that uh, it's uh, out of interest or, or it's, it's out of let's say you using power on this other person and subjecting the other person under under my own command yeah maybe maybe it's a matter of definition uh, from our point of view we could say they can do evil for the sake of evil because i was thinking maybe you know of course it's it's very difficult to define First, I understand from what you said, and I, I think I agree that it's very difficult to, do, to, to, create, to create a universal definition of evil. Of course, you did mention that there are some acts which are universally recognized as evil, like killing someone else or creating pain for someone else without apparent reason. But of course, then, of course, everyone has their own opinion on what is evil, what is fair, what is just and what is unjust. 
And it, and it might ties with the example you were giving earlier, Mariana, about this group of kids that they tortured the friend they see as a lesser friend. And the one who conflicted the more torture was the one who wanted to be accepted by the others. And I'm curious whether later on in the interviews, did he acknowledge that he understood that what he was doing was wrong, but uh, he couldn't stop uh, himself or he didn't think it was that severe on, on that moment? Yes, the boys, they absolutely uh, understood later on that they did something that was really horrible and no, no one could explain why they did it. But uh, social psychology has studied quite a lot uh, of this um, group behavior. We have these classical experiments of uh, Milgram's experiment where people were made to give uh, electric shocks because the lab head was telling them to. And there were these fake subjects who uh, were faking that they felt severe pain. Very few of the actual subjects stopped when they were uh, giving lethal electric shocks. This was a big experiment. Wait, no. sorry, it's an experiment. So fake lethal shocks. If it was an experiment, yeah. I suppose that it was all fake. So the, the participants were, they were told that they were doing real suffering and real lethal, but they were not. Yes, yes. Okay, okay, good to, it was good to clarify that. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No electric shocks were actually given. But... No one was harmed during that experiment. Right? So what, they had actors acting as they were giving, you know, the actors performing the... The subjects, yeah. you know, performing, I can assume that they were told that just, you know, when you get a beep, just fake an electric shock or something like that. So that the, the participants would think that they would actually be uh, providing the shock. Did, am I imagining right? Yes, the, this was the setting and the re results were very disturbing. Many of the actual subjects were ready to, to give uh, electric shock, which would kill only a few of them turned away in that point and defied the person who was mostly the manager <laughs> in the place. And of course, then, then there's the other classical experiment of Stanford prison experiment, where people got roles, prisoners and guards, and it's an infamous experiment. They assumed their roles so heavily that they had to cancel the whole so wait, can you can you guide us through this this experiment? So some scientists, social scientists, I assume, they collected some normal volunteers. So they were not prisoners and they were not prison guards in real life. They were just normal people, right? Yes. And then yes, they, they what? They brought them in a place and say, let's do a let's do a game. This like this sounds like the perfect beginning of a horror movie, but <laughs> no, it's reality. Okay. So social experiment. And yeah. they told them, okay, let's play a role-playing game. And they divided them in prisoners mm -hmm. and prison guards. Mm -hmm. And then what? They told them, go and play. Yeah, basically, okay. yeah. Yeah, they, they had a normal prison routine they, they would uh, follow. And it was like day two or day three when... Oh, so the thing lasted days. Uh, so these people acted as prisoners or prison guards for the whole day, for multiple days. Okay, 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 yes. okay, okay. Yes, it was supposed to go on for a lot longer, but then uh, I'm not quite sure, was it like five days or, or four days they had to call it off? Well, violence was shown against the prisoners and the prison guards started to 
use their power uh, in a wrongful manner. And the prisoners started to act very unpleasantly towards the guards. Yeah, it has been a very disputed experiment. And it was actually done again by the BBC a few years ago. And the results were not quite the same, but but it was, yeah, this, this has been a, a talking subject for decades in social psychology. That is very interesting. And it brings two things in mind. First one was the period of time the first experiment was conducted and whether the ethics were a bit more uh, liberal by some groups of people. And now we have a bit more strict uh, societal guidelines to what is ethical or not. And maybe my brain assumes that's why the experiment yielded different results now. But the second thing that it also brings in mind is how easily human beings assume a role and how dedicated they become to that role to the point where either in the one experiment, they wouldn't stop inflicting electric shock to people just because some commander was telling them to. They were so absorbed in the role of taking order and that's what I have to do. And the second thing is like how easily you assume a role and you have learned that certain actions are allowed in that role, whether as you're a guard or a prisoner in the Stanford experiment. Yeah, the, this is something I wanted to say to the, the three boys and the murder case. Uh, the social psychologists, they speak of, speak of um, social identities and how people assume different uh, social identities according to where they socially are at the moment and sometimes you can you can act as an individual with your individual goals and then in another moment you can assume the the social identity of the group and uh, then your actions become actually the the actions of the group it can be seen to explain quite a lot what's happening in there yeah there are other theories as well Sociologists have have different sorts of models, but yes, it seems to explain the reality quite well. I also find it quite interesting, the fact that uh, the Stanford experiment also tells us a lot of how we see stereotypes. Because in the first, in the, I can't remember the name of the first experiment, the one of the electric shocks, the fake electric shocks. But in that case, you had a subject, unaware that it was all fake, of course, doing someone that they were told, right? So we can only consider the, the involvement of authority in the concept of ethics and stuff. So they were just doing what they were told. But the second experiment, the Stanford one, they were not told to be violent to prisoners. They were just told to, be, to act as prison guards. And that autumn, almost automatically, uh, if, they, if they had to stop the experiment, I guess it was quite common, led to a violent behavior towards the prisoners. I found quite, that quite interesting. Like, okay, you were told to be a guard prisoner. What happened in between? When is it that something clicked and said, oh, therefore I'll be violent towards the prisoners? I don't know. That, I, I, found that, I found that quite, quite fascinating. Yes. Well, actually, there is not full certainty if the if the Stanford, uh, in the Stanford case, uh, that there was not some 
inciting going on to act more like a prison guard and and this has been a, a topic uh, for some years that is is this experiment still valid did did the head of the experiments actually affect these people by encouraging them to t- go even deeper to your role or oh, okay so there might have been so the authority factor might still be present also in this experiment Yes, it it might, but there there's not a full certainty of of this. But any anyway, the book, the Lucifer Effect, is very interesting, and I recommend it to everyone. That's that's nice. I think I will add this book to my reading list. Yeah, I wanted to to say that what you described now towards the end, it's the importance of keeping good and detailed notes on an experiment you're conducting, uh, which is something that we learn nowadays as scientists. We have to follow certain, let's say, note keeping, especially when experiments involve a life. So trying to go to that direction, maybe you can tell us in a few words, how do you perform like uh, your research and what kind of materials do you use? Is it more diving into past literature or do you have uh, the study groups and human experiments that you have been involved in? Well, da- diving in into these uh, moral philosophical questions, it, of course, it means a lot of books and books and books after one yeah, another. That, that's how I imagine philosophical and ethical research. Lots of books. Dusty books in uh, in old libraries. Okay, so I'm going into stereotypes. My apologies. <laughs> no, no, you you might be right. No, actually, now nowadays we we need to read uh, current articles also. But of course, then, well, in the case of the first article, we we gathered the the data from the uh, discussion forums from the social media, and then my second article, which was about philosophical and psychological essentialism, well, that was just basically books and articles, and then again books, <laughs> but, but um, and then some Hitler, which was not pleasant. And may I ask you exactly what is your specific research question? Yes. Well, my research question, this this is not uh, easy to answer because my articles are quite different. But let's say that the concept of evil, and especially from a collective uh, perspective, is something that goes through. I try to look at evil from the outside and how people perceive it. And then somehow from the inside, the concept itself, then what are the consequences of what we consider evil action and how is um, moral agency connected to this group evil? So you look at evil from the outside and from the inside, and you also look at the social consequences, right? Yeah. Wow, that, that, that sounds like tough. Yes. <laughs> And speaking of social consequences, where does society fall into all this? And what can society do to prevent this evil? This is probably something that I secretly hope that that my research would have an effect on. That already in, in the education or in the early education and in the school and Uh, All those very important uh, developmental points, there would be a a strong social ethical aspect involved in in everything. And uh, this requires um, the teaching of 
empathy skills. This is actually the key factor and that the children can experience that they, they are being understood. There actually just there was this research that said that even uh, children who have uh, strong psychopath tendencies, they can grow to understand feelings if their parents love them and if they if they experience love and empathy themselves, it can reduce the psycho psychopathical um, behavior. So that's something that I, I think reduces evil <laughs> in the society. And that will be a very promising result because I'm, I'm always very interested and intrigued because uh, you see all these nowadays documentaries on Netflix about real life uh, serial killers. And, and then you hear how many of them had very bad childhood, neglected or even abused. So I, I would I would like to, to see something promising in terms of like if you grow up in a healthy environment, you might be able to learn how to support suppress your tendency to perform evil actions but then at the same time I am thinking is it enough because we have kids who grow up in healthy and very comfortable environments so should we assume or is there always something missing when they grow up uh, and that the missing factor is what uh, they need so that they won't become evil or is there something more well of course, I'm, I'm not an expert in the field of psychology or psychiatry, but mm, from, from what I know, we have these factors that we know that are um, good for uh, a developing child and protecting factors. And then there are uh, risk factors. And approximately, uh, if you have more protecting factors, you, you grow up um, balanced and uh, able to love and able, able to feel empathy. And then if you have risk factors, well, too many for you, then you, you go off, off the rails and your development goes off the rails. And of course, some, sometimes it's just bad luck. Fortunately, as, as research continues and betters itself, we know more and we know more how to prevent, well, going off the rails. As you grow up as a balanced uh, individual, then you don't have the same strong tendency to get the approval of these uh, groups that might end up doing bad things to other people. So we have been talking for quite some time now and we're coming towards the end of our episode. So maybe Mariana, uh, you want to tell us what is your key message or your last uh, message you want the audience to take away home? Well, thank you for the question. I think at this point in my research, what I want to say is that none of us is uh, immune and especially when it comes to propaganda, and even if it's hidden in the commercials or, or, or uh, wherever we, we get our entertainment from, it's, uh, it's very important that we are aware of our own biases, because we are human beings and we are under the same, same uh, behavioral laws 
that than everyone else, even though we might might feel that that these don't affect me and and I form my own opinions and and I have my own morality which I have uh, compressed myself <laughs> and this this uh, is never true <laughs> and this is actually what I what I think that I, I want to say that we need to be aware uh, of our own own morality of our own worldviews and especially our own biases because they they get in the way of a peaceful living and well social ethical living this is a very important and excellent message and thank you for bringing it up mariana but unfortunately it also brings us to the end of this podcast episode however before you go, Giuliano, what is the fun fact of the day? I think I have a fun fact that fits quite well the episode. We've been talking about evil and how we perceive things as evil. Now, are you aware of the, um, let's say, the reputation that violent video games have in society? They're usually considered evil. And there are a lot of people thinking they lead uh, children and kids and teenagers into violence and to be aggressive and stuff right. like that. Well, right. the fun fact, which is not, I mean, it's a fun fact, meaning that I found it interesting and curious, but it's something that I care about. So rather than a fun fact, it's a, it's a good fact and it's something that people should know about. There are several studies, and I actually, I brought the latest one here as a fun fact. So I'm not just, the fun thing isn't just a statement. But there are several studies, both from the economical and sociological point of view, stating that there's no correlation between aggressive behavior and violent video games, uh, violent video games used in children. So I have here a, a, a recent article published in August 2021, so some months ago, on the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization by a scientist from the Department of Economics, uh, University of London. So basically what this researcher did is they analyzed the aggressive behavior of teenager in a specific amount of time right after the release of violent video games. So just to give you a bit of context, uh, violent video games, they are rated uh, depending on the genre, but also by the, the age group that can actually play them. Uh, usually violent video games are 18 plus, meaning that you should be playing them only if you're uh, older than 18 years old in the US apparently 17 plus but we're talking about the same roughly the same age so this researcher analyzed the be the aggressive behavior of teenagers after the release of violent video games and what they saw was that there seems to be no significant increase of aggressive behavior in teenagers five to six months after the release of violent video games and this is just one paper adding to the numerous and several publication showing that this correlation is inexistent. Well, I can give my own hypothesis uh, on yeah. this. Mm, well, it might be that, uh, that the uh, violent, actual violence uh, does not increase after the uh, publication of, of these video games because the kids are home playing the video games. So <laughs> that's a very good point. The researcher in included that as a possible reason. Um, no, no, but that's cool. true. That's true. Uh, in fact, the, the research analyzed the presence of, you know, the, the, the rate of aggression and aggressive behavior 
in different times after the release of video games and also like five to six months after release. Um, and after five or six months, you would assume that a child has played the game and has been influenced if, if there would be any influence. And the author does foresee this possibility that the, 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 the kids are actually indoors, therefore they cannot have actual aggressive behaviors. However, um, the data is also not only, basically it's not on the rate of aggressive acts in the, in the street, rather a questionnaire of the submitted to the kids and the parents. So the researcher asked the kids and the parents, you know, you know, did you have aggressive behaviors and destructive behaviors in um, after playing the video games? And apparently both the kids and the parents agreed that there was no aggressive behavior, meaning that the kids would not, there was no increase in behaviors aggressive towards another person. However, the parents of a small subset of kids reported an increase in destructive, destructive behavior. So what uh, about kids... the teachers and the other members that, of the society that interact with these kids? Because we know very well from examples in real life that sometimes parents are not aware of the way their kids behave outside home. And maybe at home they are angelic, but at school they are very, very naughty. Absolutely. No, but again, this, is, this paper was trying to focus on what happens at home because all the other papers focus on what happened outside. Okay. So the idea is that there's plenty of publications showing that in the streets, outside, there doesn't seem to be any increased rate of aggression and violence after violent video games, but no one was checking what happens inside. And okay. this paper tried to answer that question. So yeah, anyway, uh, I was no, just, I, I just thought of sharing this meaning, like this is just one p additional piece that consolidates the scientific evidence behind the no correlation. So therefore the no reason to keep blaming video games for for violent uh, violent crimes. Well, what I take from this, the information, which is very interesting, and we will leave all the sources for our uh, listeners. Um, but uh, my message is that you're a fan of video games and the violent ones, and you want to reinstate the reputation. <laughs> true. I have a conflict of interest, but I'm not the one who made the, the research. So, Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm just reporting. Thank you, Mariana, for this awesome conversation. I really had an amazing time talking. It was eye-opening and made me think a lot about my own actions. And I uh, thank our listeners for staying tuned until the end. And if you like this episode, give it a thumbs up and rate it on the podcasting app of your choice. And don't forget to share it with your friends. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by the Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.